0: Chris Morangi with us with Gabelli Funds, our co-chief investment officer. Chris, I want to start with sort of not the equity hysteria that's out there, but the, the media angst that's going on right now. How do you define a correction in 2020? Is it down 10% or is there a new calculus for Gabelli Funds? <laughs>
1: this is nothing. Listen, this is This is healthy. Um, Obviously, the the correction is concentrated in a few stocks. Those few stocks happen to have accounted for more than 100% of the gains of the S&P so far this year. Um, So... You know, this is a different correction than certainly we've seen in the past.
0: Here's a money question for the day, Chris. And when I saw our lineup earlier this morning, when I walked in uh, hours before John Farrow and Lisa Bramowitz, Uh. I I would want to point out, Chris, that I really went to the heart of the matter, which is how should our listeners and viewers who are not sophisticates in derivatives, how should they adapt to the NASDAQ well, the gamma well? Did they just ignore it?
1: I am certainly not an expert on market internals and why the market is short gamma, uh, but it certainly has introduced volatility. It's powered the move up in part, uh, along with a lot of other factors, and and it appears to be uh, driving the reduction that we're seeing in futures. future. So um, something to understand, be aware of. But at the end of the day, we're looking at the fundamentals of each of these stocks. And as Jonathan pointed out earlier, the fundamentals of, of those big five stocks have been terrific so far this year.
2: Chris is just trying to work out the appropriate multiple to pay on some of these companies. Can you just give us some insight into those conversations right now over at Gabelli?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, in general, obviously, where where rates are pinned and appear to be pinned for a very long time, you should be willing to pay a higher multiple for any stream of cash flows. Um, and the question is, you know, how durable are the cash flows of, say, those big five, if that's what we're talking about, and and what should you be willing to pay for them? Um, you know, it seems that uh, a year ago, obviously, they would have been bar- at bargain prices, but at this point, eh, the, the market is making a bet that those the durability of that cash will last a very long time uh, and that they grow, you know, at probably double global GDP growth for the next 10, 15, 20 years. That's a little bit of a harder bet to make.
3: So are you holding, are you buying, or are you selling into this great dip of 2020, as Tom might name yeah. it? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we've been buying We've been buying uh, different kind of stocks. We've been buying the smaller and unloved, what would be considered value stocks. Um, some of those stocks are still off over 30% this year. In fact, a quarter of the Russell uh, 3000 uh, is uh, is still off by 30, 25 or 30%. And that's where we're seeing bargains. You know, amongst the big five, you know, we've owned Google. Uh, it's a media, a, a, essentially a media name that we can understand. Um, we've owned a little bit of Facebook over time, haven't owned Amazon, uh, unlike our Uh, Patriarch Warren Buffett haven't been big in Apple, at least on the value side. uh, I think there are some idiosyncratic issues there that we're uh, very careful of, particularly around China. Um, So, you know, this hasn't really changed our view on valuation uh, just yet.
3: Although at a certain point, it does become concerning from a faith perspective. The idea of what does this do to the marginal investor who has an allocation still in safer assets, who was going to go into stocks, that suddenly sees these high flyers, these staples of of certainty being uh, absolutely pummeled, even if it is short term and even if year to date, the gains are tremendous. At what point do these become systemic issues? Do they become systemic sell offs that really infect the other parts of the stock market?
1: Well, you know, it's a great question. Um, you know, coming into last week, those big five were almost a quarter of the S&P 500. Lots lot's been written about that. It's sort of an unprecedented level of concentration. So if you thought by buying an S&P index fund, you were getting a nice diversified set of equities, you may need to rethink that. Um, you know, those five companies uh, not only are a large part of the S&P, but they're all essentially driven by the same kind of dynamics. They're all, even though they're different industry classifications, all essentially Internet platform companies, subject to a lot of the same risks. Uh, And and that's that's really unprecedented and uh, I think leaves the average investor exposed to maybe more risks than they were uh, thinking they were taking.
0: Going on right down to NASDAQ, testing new lows on 340 points, 3 percent move here. John Farrell, I give you great credit for this because I keep talking tech, tech, tech. And through the year, J.P. Morgan down 24 percent from the February highs. That shows the damage out there just in the banking area alone.
2: The banks have struggled through 2020. Jamie Dimon said months ago and it got everybody's attention that this isn't a normal recession and we haven't seen the impact of this recession just yet. It might come later this year. Chris, as you look at the financials, how do you think about that?
1: Again, you know, these are these are obviously names that are very sensitive to the uh, shape and absolute level of, of interest rates. And that's not been a good story for them. Um, net interest margins uh, were starting to perk up at the end of last year and now have compressed again, and, and, we don't see them expanding uh, anytime soon that being said you know they're priced for that kind of uh, Mm -hmm. outlook um the other dynamic obviously is a lot of fear that especially came in in march about uh, credit credit seems like it's Probably going to end up a little bit better than was feared, um, but still, you know, it's going to be an ongoing issue for some time as we work through this uh, recovery.
0: Chris Berengue, new lows here this morning, negative th- uh, three, three negative 3.1 percent, down 350 NASDAQ points. We break down to new lows right now. When, for you guys, does tech become cheap?
1: I don't know if I can answer that at a macro level, but um, you know we're we're obviously looking at at all sectors. I think there's a lot to like in tech. A lot of those business models, particularly amongst the big five, recurring revenue models, subscription, low capital intensity. These are all things that fundamental investors should love. Again, as you as to your point, what do you pay for that? Um, And you know we generally are looking when we're looking at tech, we're looking at technology embedded within. Uh, other sectors, um, because obviously, you know, things like everything from uh, AI to uh, automation, um, you know, impacting the productivity of of those other sectors. And that's generally where we're looking to play tech. Um, We're also playing tech uh, in in some derivative manners. You know, the value of broadband has been highlighted uh, through this crisis. You can't get any of those tech services without a fast broadband connection. I couldn't be here doing this without a fast broadband connection. What am I willing to pay for that? I'm willing to pay a lot for it. And so that gives those companies a lot of pricing power. And that's why we like the erstwhile cable companies, now known as broadband infrastructure companies.
2: Hey, Chris, great to catch up. As Wonderful. always, Chris Morangi there Wonderful. of Gabelli Fund.
0: Subandra Joppa joins us with SockGen. And of course, what's wonderful here about her skill in U.S. rates is the heritage of SockGen in the derivative space as well. Over the weekend, Subada, you had to combine in the derivative analysis of the soft bank gamma trade with what the fixed income market will do. Is there any correlation there? Is there a linkage between year world and the equity derivative gamma world that we're seeing right now?
4: There actually seems to be very little correlation between the two markets, at least in the last couple of months, because bonds have stayed very much range bound. And I think that that supported the equity rally, if anything. So uh, there seems to be a huge divergence between the signaling you're getting from these two
0: markets. Is the signaling of bonds aggregate demands diminishing? I mean, can you link it up with lower oil prices and link it up with global slowdown expected?
4: Absolutely. I think that the the bond market is extraordinarily cautious, which is what you would expect. And I think lower yields are are, uh, fueling the rally in equities. Broadly speaking, I think... Uh, The data, you know, in uh, July and August has been sort of plateauing. You saw this sort of sharp move higher in the data in in May and and June. So, you know, the market's extraordinarily cautious given the rise in the infection rates. Uh, And the fact that we haven't gotten enough uh, fiscal stimulus is also keeping the market somewhat range bound.
2: So, Badger, for a while now, people have talked about the potential for the Treasury market to turn into a zombie market because of the Federal Reserve's huge moves over the last year or so. And not just the Treasury market, the credit market as well. So, Badger, from your perspective, is the long end aligned with fundamentals and the trajectory of this recovery?
4: No, because of the fact that the market's pricing in a lower for longer paradigm, uh, given the fact that the Fed is going to keep interest rates low. And there's still a lot of uncertainty about the trajectory of future monetary policy initiatives. Will they purchase more? Will they purchase more uh, weighted towards the long end? So the the long end of of the curve reflecting the tug of war, I would say, between uh, this glut of supply we're going to see in the second half versus uh, the potential for the Fed to start purchasing more in the long end. So you're seeing a very range-bound market across the curve. But I think ultimately the supply picture is going to outweigh any sort of demand you're going to see, or or, uh, I should say marginal uh, buying you're going to see from the Fed.
2: Well, let's talk about the supply picture, Subhadra. Your basic assumptions right now going forward and how they would need to adjust if at all if we don't get a fiscal deal, another deal down in DC. Um,
4: I think that the in the August refunding, the Treasury um, already accommodated for, I would say, about a trillion dollars uh, in spending coming after, um, after the uh, August refunding meeting. So the supply has gone up quite meaningfully in anticipation of another deal getting passed through and that hasn't really happened. So, uh, you know, regardless, I think that the the supply is, and deficits are gonna be higher uh, for the foreseeable future. So I think that that's going to be something that weighs on the long end over time, especially if the fundamentals improve and yields start to ride, rise reflecting better fundamentals and you should see steeper curves.
3: When you talk about the marginal buying by the Federal Reserve, so far it has been that. And for the past two months, the Fed's balance sheet has stayed pretty much consistent, constant. At what point, if yields do rise, do you expect the Fed to step in more meaningfully?
4: I think if the move in, re- in yields is somewhat erratic, you see some sharp rise in, in, in yields like we saw uh, you know, after the taper tantrum, or if there's some sort of a fundamental reason for uh, lack of liquidity, I think that's when the Fed steps in. If it's a very gradual rise in yields uh, warranted from improving fundamentals, I think the Fed will be okay. So any sort of sharp move higher in yields is when I think I see the Fed coming in uh, and, and sort of st- you know putting a lid on how high yields can go.
3: So one of the big raging debates right now people get really heated about this is whether the 60/40 portfolio is dead, whether uh, treasuries basically at yields this low are an insufficient hedge against volatility. Do you agree with that thesis?
4: I think so because you know if you know looking back even the last couple of decades I mean the 6040 portfolio has been bonds rallying and stocks rallying right so the the, the, equi- the fixed income portfolio has never been a strong hedge for for equities uh, maybe over short periods of time, but not, not over the, the a, a longer horizon. Now you're seeing even less of that, given the fact that the Fed is going to, uh, you know, we, we have an environment where uh, negative interest rates are, are, are not uh, in the cards, which means that interest rates are floored at zero. So there's only one way uh, treasury yields can go, either sideways from here on or higher. And that's, that. I think that dynamic doesn't play into the forty-sixty, 60 um, you know, portfolio paradigm.
0: You know, I look, Sabadra so at this, and folks, we've got NASDAQ breaking down now 2.7%, 308 points. We're at a new weakness uh, today as well. The vol that we see in the equity markets, are we going to see that in the bond markets?
4: Probably not. I think if, if you know, tenant treasury yields, for instance, have been between – you know 50 to 80 basis points uh, that's probably where they're going to spend the remainder of the, of this year so i think that there's really uh, this lower for longer paradigm generally the japanification i would say of, of u.s bond yields is going to keep volatility somewhat low what you're seeing now is market positioning, uh, you know, for a potential rise in yields and enriching of, of perhaps some of those of those metrics like pair skews. But, but broadly speaking, I think I think are going to remain low for the foreseeable future.
0: Why is that? Why? How does it dampen down? Is it just Fed intrusion into the market where it's not a real market? I mean, I just don't buy the exactly. idea that it should go quiet.
4: Yeah, exactly. I think that the, you know the the per- participation of the Fed is not something that's near term. This is an open ended you know purchase program where they're purchasing 80 billion per month and that size could potentially increase if there's volatility in the markets not decrease so given that sort of paradigm it's really hard to envision especially yields uh, from uh two years to 10 years uh you know being very volatile given the fact that they are historical lows and they're going to be low given the fact that the fed is committed to a lower for longer strategy
3: Subhadra Japa of Societe Generale, it is the day after Labor Day in the United States. Normally, this is the time when people would be getting back to work, back to the office. People are just getting back to their computers where they've been at their kitchen tables all this time. Can you talk about the change, whether you're going to see any shift in positioning, any shift in strategy at this point as people reassess in their post-summer meetings, or do you think that this year is just going to be different because you're just going to get that consistent feeling of in limbo? I think it's
4: going to unfortunately be a consistent feeling of needing more data before you can uh, have a clear direction on treasury yields. Um, you know, broadly speaking, this week we get a lot of supplies, so we could see some concession uh, into the uh, into into the auctions. But other than that, uh, the dynamics are going to be led by the infection rates and and not having. Uh, you know, clarity on the data. There's a lot of volatility. You're going to see upside ups, upward divisions to data as well as downward divisions to data.
2: So, Patrick, I'm just going to jump in and wrap up the conversation. Thanks for joining us. So on radio and
0: television right now, we're going to frame all of this with Barry Ritholtz. We can do that not only uh, with his wonderful book of years ago, what he's writing for Bloomberg Opinion and on his podcast, but Ritholtz with a great sense of history um, as well. Barry, I want to go to Nassim Taleb in the wonderful character Nero Tulip in his book Fooled by Randomness, who's completely taken in the opening of the book by the red Porsche the guy is driving. We have had a red Porsche market. Everybody's been able to afford red Porsches with the market up, up, and away, and we nudge down 5 or 6% and the world's coming to an end. What's a real correction
5: look like? How how soon they forget, right? Let's put some numbers on that. Uh, Since since all of this energy or most of this energy has been taking place in the big tech stocks, let's use the Nasdaq 100 as an example. In the March lows, it was barely over seven thousand, and it peaked in August at twelve four and change. That's about a seventy seven percent rally in less than six months. So uh, straight up for seventy-seven percent, I think a ten or a fifteen or even a twenty percent pullback is certainly overdue. And profit taking is probably the most abused phrase in all of finance. But in this case, it could legitimately be people who bought in March, April, May, saying, "All right, I got a huge profit. Maybe I should ring the bell and and take a little something off the table."
3: Barry, do you buy that SoftBank is causing the sell-off? Uh,
5: about as much as I buy the fact that Robinhood was driving the market in the first place. Look, look, they're a $100 billion fund. Most of that money is tied up in pretty liquid long-term investments. So if they want to fool around, for lack of a better phrase, with a couple of billion dollars in options and derivatives, Uh, They could move a handful of stocks for a little bit, but that ignores the fact that you've just had a massive, massive move across a lot of big companies that are actually doing well during lockdown. They're doing well because they have global exposure and they're doing well because they were built for work from home pandemic circumstances. So- I'm not buying the the SoftBank whale story uh, at all.
3: OK, so here's the question I was asking, uh, John, I said, you know, I'm not seeing a narrative here. What's the narrative? And he said, don't look for one. There hasn't been one. August was the problem when people were trying to find one. That's what we've learned. And here we don't really have a cohesive narrative to explain it. It's more randomness, to your point, the fallacy of uh, a narrative. And yet... What undermines this idea that you buy the behemoths, you buy these cash fortresses that will continue to do well in a tech-driven economy? Why not just buy now, given the fact that they've come off? I mean, have we really upended our questions about how to fundamentally value these companies?
5: You know, uh, that's a really challenging question about valuation, um, for a couple of reasons. Clearly, valuations have gotten extended. And the prior narrative, the prior, prior narrative before the whale narrative was stocks and investors are looking over the valley of 2020 to the recovery in 2021, or perhaps 2022. Uh, one of the narratives, one of the few narratives that make sense is Tesla was running up in anticipation of being added to the S and P 500, and when that didn't happen because of supposed profit yeah. and, and revenue reasons, I, I, that sell-off, okay, I can accept that. I could I could buy into that argument because there was no indexing coming in to to make up for the lack of uh, lack of purchases. But the problem with narratives, especially after the fact, hindsight hindsight biased driven narratives, is <clears throat> they ignore how random so much of the market action is. And if it was easy and predictable and foreseeable, well, hey, we'd all be wealthy. But the randomness is what makes it so challenging. And people who are uncomfortable with randomness spend a lot of mental and emotional energy looking for a description and a storyline that makes them comfortable. Humans are terribly uncomfortable with random outcomes.
0: Barry, one of the great things here in the derivative markets, and again with SoftBank, is if you issue the call, there's the put, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the right against the call. Fine. Do you just assume there will be losses if SoftBank takes a gain of X billion dollars? Do you just assume there's a prescribed sum loss against it by Global Wall Street?
5: Trading is essentially a zero-sum gain. So for game, so for every winner in a trade, there's a loser, the exception being not the traders, but the investors who are allowing compounding and the, uh, the passage of time to work in their favor. If someone sold something uh, at 10, 20 years ago, and today it's being um, the person who bought it is selling it at 200, that's not exactly a zero sum. But if I'm a buyer and you're a seller, and then tomorrow I'm a seller and you're a buyer, net, net, that's going to flatten out to zero minus whatever the trading costs are.
0: we Barry Ritholtz. Can't wait to see you write on this. Barry Ritholtz writing for Bloomberg Opinion is Carson with Ritholtz Wealth Management. Right now, the conversation of the day for those of you worried about fiscal dynamics. John Farrell's is going to dive into the German view. I'm going to look more at the global view, and we can do that with Peter Westaway of Vanguard, their chief economist with prodigious math abilities out of York and Cambridge and operational research. Peter, the dynamics of this debate is wrapped around culture, which is austerity is good. Have we slipped away from the belief of the last number of years that austerity is a good and beautiful thing
6: in a slowdown? I think we have definitely slipped away from that. I mean, I'm not very. I'm not really convinced that that was ever the economics mainstream, but it was certainly the policy mainstream. Um, in Germany, that was very much the view, and, and that's why we've seen relatively tight fiscal policy there. Um, but I think here in the United Kingdom, the appetite for austerity to get the, the debt levels down is something that we're not going to see for a while yet. I think, uh, I think the mood of the new government in the UK, and perhaps more broadly in, in Europe, is for much, much looser policy. Perhaps um, just living with higher levels of debt Let's not forget that the interest rates at which much of this debt is being funded during this pandemic is incredibly low. And so the burden that it's going to put on countries isn't going to be great, uh, as great as it might have been in the past. So John, at know, some point, it's going to have to be paid off. Yeah, John uh, Farrow, we uh, hear... Th- really
0: what- well, I don't mean to interrupt, but John, I think this is really the heart of the matter is a low-yield environment. It's a free pass.
2: So far. So far, at least. And when you use that language, Peter, that at some point this will have to be paid off... What does that some point look like?
6: Well, I think at the moment, it's, it's the last thing on the minds of government because there's still ups of areas in, in coping with the pandemic. I think when and if we do get to this point when economies start to recover much more quickly, when the tightening cycle begins again, and, and, and again, we're a long way from that yet. At that point, I think the conversations will start to be about, well, what are we going to do about fiscal policy? Are we going to tighten policy? Um it may be though, as I say, that that we'll just learn to live with this and, and perhaps, you know, this idea that some of the debt will just effectively be monetised. Let's not forget, many of the central banks have, are sitting on this debt. At the moment it's not putting a burden it's not really putting a burden on the government because the debt interest is being yep. paid by by the Bank of England, effectively. So at some point, QE has to get on That's what makes it QE. QE means that the debt eventually gets sold back into the into the private sector. When it's not sold back, that's when it's called monetary financing. And if you think of the history of QE, Japan, Europe, even the US to an extent, a lot of this QE is still sitting on banks' balance sheets. So we haven't really seen the cycle of QE play out yet, uh, and so we don't really know how it's going to play.
2: Well, that's QE forever, isn't it, Peter? You just keep reinvesting yeah, exactly. maturing assets. Yeah. You keep doing, you never forgive it, so technically it's not financing. There is another issue here, and it's not just the crisis response, Peter. It is the permanent change. That's what I'm interested in. I think we can all get our hands around what the crisis response looks like. We can see it in the last couple of months. Permanent shifts in the framework at the Fed, permanent fiscal changes in places like Germany. Can you speak to that for us, Peter? Sure.
6: I mean, let me start with, as a a former central banker... uh, Talk about what the Fed have uh, have introduced. This idea of average inflation targeting or price level targeting. I mean, at the moment, it's still not completely clear what they're going to do. I think the key message is that that is is going to facilitate easier monetary policy for longer. Personally, I'm a bit of a a price level targeting sceptic. I think it's a a difficult thing to carry off. To start worrying about inflation bygones, but. That's really where where we're going with that. Sorry. Um, As far as fiscal policy is concerned, I think we are in a new regime because I think the idea of getting debt down quickly, the way we did after the financial crisis, just isn't palatable. I don't think it worked very well for countries like Europe. and I just don't think the political appetite for that is there anymore. Uh, There's just too many other political problems around the, you know, the distribution of income and so on that makes fiscal policy and fiscal austerity just not a palatable policy option.
3: Meanwhile, they've got a partner in the central banks. We do have that ECB meeting on Thursday. Meanwhile, the Bank of England, which you were a member of, has considered or talked openly about negative interest rates. Do you expect that to be a tool used by them in the not so distant future, especially given the fact that there really isn't an easy pathway to paying back some of the debt?
6: Yeah, they've left it all open for negative interest rates. But I mean, even back at my time at the bank over 10 years ago now, the the idea of, of negative interest rates wasn't looked on very kindly. So, I think they've probably got more work to do on QE before they go down that path. But I think they, they could they could do it. Um, but, but I think we're getting close to the end of the road for negative rates for to, to the ECB. I don't think rates can go that much, much wait, lower. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on one second. EC- that's,
3: Peter, hold on one second, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's a huge I'm issue. Sorry. If you're saying that they're getting close to the end of the road with negative interest rates, do you think that they are going to, at some point in our lifetimes, move to a positive interest rate regime?
6: No, I don't mean they're going to reverse it, but they're going to keep the rates at the very low negative levels that they're at, and I think they will carry on... Putting QE into the system to to push down yields to ease monetary conditions. I think so. I think the big policy constraint question for the ECB is at what point do they run out of government bonds to buy, and will they have to start breaking their own rules around um, you know which bonds they're able to buy? Uh, that that for me mm-hmm. is the big question, rather than whether they're going to go a lot more deeply into negative territory. Because I think at the end of the day. especially for an economy like Europe's that's so dependent on the banking system, you do start bumping up against the so-called reversal rate, where actually negative rates start to do more harm than good.
0: Peter Westaway with us on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. We welcome all of you to our simulcast this morning. Lisa Bramworth Jonathan Farrow, and Tom King. We're looking at the markets tick by tick. We'll get to that when we're done with Dr. Westaway uh, right now. All you need to know, futures, negative 46. It is pretty tough out there uh, this morning. Dr. Westaway, to sum all this up, and when you look at the fiscal policy right now, it comes back to aggregate demand. We're seeing an oil this morning a real global issue of demand. Would you suggest that demand is threatened into Q4?
6: Well, I think the big question in Q4 is really at the same question we've had for the last six months, which is what's going to happen to the virus, what's going to happen to uh, the, policy, the, the consumer response to that. And at the moment, consumers, firms are still very tentative about going out and spending money and so we do have this aggregate demand shortfall which is where the fiscal policy is piling in to try and replace that spending. And and really it's it's a bit different this fiscal policy support because what it's really doing is it's providing income to people who are are out of work. So it's not so much about getting people out spending money that they otherwise wouldn't have spent it's actually just propping up their income and as long as people are out of work or on furlough there's going to be a need for this. So I think the difficult question is going to be, you know, if, if the virus drags on into the first quarter of next year, as it easily could, is it really feasible that governments will carry on giving this exceedingly generous income support to to workers who haven't yet got back into, into work? I think they're going to have to, but it's going to yeah. really put a strain on, on the dead.
2: Peter, great to catch up. We've got to leave it there. Peter Westaway, there of vanguard.